from the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. The Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. And Magic Johnson is out there celebrating! Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. A time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan. Yes. It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty. Alongside my co-host, Corbin Ford, I am Garrett Bougay. And uh, before we get into this week's episode, just had a quick announcement to make. I uh, recently was added as a contributor to the uh, the website Rip City Project, which is a part of the fan-sided network. And I actually posted my first article there on Arvita Sabonis last week, so uh, feel free to ch- check that one out. The, the title is Six Surplus Seasons of Sabonis, and uh, I'll be continuing to do some, some projects... Uh, and articles for them in the uh, the weeks and, and months to come. So uh, keep an eye out on that website. Uh, hopefully you'll uh, you'll enjoy some of my content and uh, a lot of the other great uh, contributors at that site as well. Uh, as far as this episode, uh, this is part two of a discussion Corbin and I had about the 1995 Western Conference Finals between the Houston Rockets and the San Antonio Spurs. We released part one of our discussion last week, so if you haven't listened to that yet, I urge you to check that one out first. But without further ado, here is part two. Let's move on to game three, and I guess we should should mention that we both watched games one, two, five, and six in their entirety. I don't know how much of games three and four you watched. I watched the second half of Game 3, and the third quarter in particular of Game 4. How about you? Um, yeah, I watched more the first half of Game 3. I watched parts of game of the second half of Game 3 as well, um, primarily focusing on, you know, the closeout. But then I watched uh, most of Game 4 as well, um, which was kind of good because when I went into it, obviously, you know, I knew that the, the Rockets won, but I made a point just for the basketball entertainment side to not look at the final scores of any of the games. So Same here. Really kinda, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I can really kind of be in the moment of that. And that was, it, it positively impacted my viewing explicitly because, I mean, it just, catching when teams pulled away was all great. Everything. But no, to go to game three, like you mentioned, um, you know, I did watch the first half and uh, I did watch primarily the first half. I guess we'll kind of help each other out on that one. Time, it was interesting because the notes I have for that, and it was really simple, was that it was a lot more nip and tuck. Um, for one, this person knocking down more outside jumpers. Um, Avery Johnson at the time was not questionable. He was definitely going to play, but I think they'd even said on um, the announcing team before that he was kind of testing it out to make sure that he was going to be good to go and how that worked. And he played pretty effectively as well. You know, uh, he played 41 minutes, so I think that Bob Hill was fairly confident in him being able to produce. But um, he racked up good numbers. One thing that I was impressed about, not only was it um, um, Johnson's play, but a- Sean Elliott had a bounce-back game. Um for sure, especially in that first half, knocking out some big jumpers. And David Robinson was playing very well. Um, again, another solid game that, you know, he didn't. He wasn't a soft in any of them. He was just outmatched because he puts up those numbers. Hakeem Olajuwon, again, just continued to go into that bag, man. 
Yeah, so uh, the the notes I had for Game 3, the Rockets hitting nine threes in the first half and taking a nine-point lead, you know, nine threes made in, in a 1995 playoff game is, is quite a bit. Uh, and the you you mentioned a lot of it though the David Robinson really getting the help from the, the supporting cast this time you know Rodman 14 rebounds in 37 minutes Elliott with 21 points and and he hit three threes Avery Johnson 20 points 13 assists but the big one for me and I think one of the big adjustments and one of the the nice adjustments Bob Hill made was after Vinny Del Negro averaged just six points a game in the first two games of the series. He started running some actions to get Del Negro involved, and it's really started working. They would run a, a left side pick and roll with Del Negro and David Robinson, and that gave Houston some big problems in the second half. Of course, Del Negro going right, he can pull up and knock down that jumper. He's also a pretty good passer, uh, had five assists in, in game three. He could hit Avery Johnson spotting up from 17 feet in the right-hand corner. Sean Elliott was on the right wing. And, of course, David Robinson rolling to the rim. So, you know, the, the Rockets kept picking their poison. Sometimes they would leave Avery Johnson a few times. He knocked down some jumpers once they left uh, Elliott, and he knocked down a three. Del Negro hit a, a couple of floaters and a pull-up jumper, found Robinson a few times. So so that action really started working. And, again, a, a key player on this San Antonio team that was largely absent in the first two games, Bob Hill found a way to give him life. And that was a great adjustment, you're right, because he exploded, I mean, he exploded for 19, knocked down three big threes, and you're right, put the Rockets in a conundrum that they hadn't had to deal with before, where it's okay, we have one guy who's going to get his shots, and he's converting them pretty well, we have Robinson who's playing well, um, same kind of action that you described, or similar one to the Drexler and Robinson, or Drexler and um, Elijah one pick and roll, and what are you going to defend, and, and how are you going to stop that? And, right. Yeah, I, big minutes, I think this was Chuck Person's best game of the series, or one of them, um, especially just not being very efficient overall, but he came and knocked down three big threes. And the sad thing is, you said, I mean, not the sad thing, because the Rockets knocked down, you said nine in the first half, 13 in the game, but the Spurs were hitting the most threes they hit, and they were, the, the, the three ball wasn't nearly the weapon that it was for them, that it was for the Rockets, but even for them, they kind of stepped up from beyond there and said, okay, our outside shooters, let's get some shots up. And three of their primary guys who did shoot from distance, Elliot. Del Negro in um, person, each hit three three-pointers apiece to kind of come up with that nine. The one person I was shocked um, didn't, who was another guy I considered a shooter, um, was Willie Anderson, who only played nine minutes in that one, um, and didn't take one either, but I mean, when you had 34 big ones going to Del Negro and, and person, I'm getting 15 as well, along with your normal starting rotation, you kind of tightened it up somewhere, so it actually worked out in its favor, I guess, for the Spurs in this one. Um, but I definitely found it surprising that Avery Johnson comes back from kind of a gimpy ankle, and we go, you know what, we're going to give you 41 minutes. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's one of the things, though, and as far as his recovery, it was good that he, uh, you know, for the most part did not play af- play too many minutes after spraining it in Game 2. You know, a lot of coaches will just let the player go out there and play 30, 35 minutes just on adrenaline before the thing swells up. But that oftentimes will make it worse for the next couple of days. So I think that was a smart move to, even though it may have cost them game two, uh, to make sure that Johnson was right for the rest of the series probably gave them the best chance. So so that's a situation where I think they, they made the right call. Um, but for, for Houston's side of things, you know, they kept this close. It, it did feel like San Antonio, especially once they had gained control in the second half, kind of, uh, you know, 
like the Spurs kind of had control, but the you know performance from Akeem Olajuwon just continuing to amaze. 43 points, 11 rebounds, and five blocks in the defeat for uh, for the Dream. Oh yeah, he was at times the entire offense uh, for the Rockets, even though they had great help from others. Um, again, Clyde Drexler being another solid player in a supporting role to um, Olajuwon, but again. A 19 or 32 knockdown on a three ball. <laughs> it was just a monster battle foul trouble again, but all over. Uh, just a well all around multifaceted game. 43 points, 11 rebounds, four assists, five blocks. Taylor on the block. Same thing we described about that Arsenal offensive that he had. He just continued to go down the well, and it was something that would you really could just say is a serious storyline. It became one with the Hakeem dominates um, Robinson, but it was really Hakeem dominate everyone. I mean. It didn't really matter. Um, and Robinson, his own right, was putting up numbers that were solid. But I think this was Elijah at the peak of his powers, um, just career-wise, everything coming together. I um, mean, that two-year span, but 95 really being that one year, I don't even want to say flash in the pen, where everything was just monstrous. I mean, 19-32 from the field. Um, and it wasn't like the Spurs weren't trying. It was just all the looks he had and even some that were awkward faders and, and hot. It was, it was the versatility that he had in the shots and some that, Really didn't let they should have gone in, but Elijah was just on it, you know? Yeah, and you know, you, you're talking about these crazy offensive numbers, and they're comparable to the last series that we discussed with Bernard King in that matchup against the Pistons, but Hakeem is also doing this on the other end, you know, being a defensive player of the year caliber guy while putting up 43 points. So it can't be overstated, you know, the, the offensive performance combined with what he's also doing on the other end. Yeah, no, you're right. The impact on both ends of the floor, taking players completely out of their shots. I know it was the one he had where he deterred um, Chuck Person into a turnover. Um, I think it was another one where I think it was had um, been J.R. Reed, if I remember. Yeah, making a turnover because he felt um, Elijah one at his back in terms of you know being able to guard his man and come over from the weak side to close out. And just the fear of that guy looming over you made players freak out on both sides. He was supremely dominant. And even in this losing effort, and it really was just, again, another Nick and Cup game throughout. It really took the third and fourth quarters, a uh, big third quarter for San Antonio, and then um, the Rockets kind of tightened up there and another one for uh, the Spurs then um, in the fourth to really pull away here. But, yeah, even that losing effort, it was it was crazy. <laughs> you had such a performance from Elijah one. Kenny Smith had a solid game, knocked down four big threes, and then Ori again, you know, felt like he had a good game, bad game, good game, but now he's coming off of two very solid games. Uh, for the Rockets, and again, like you said, was a terror all around. Yeah, so unlike Game 1 where the Spurs missed free throws down the stretch and gave Houston hope, uh, you know, Houston down in this game had to resort to, to fouling, and, and that's one of the possessions you mentioned. Hakeem hit a three in this one. He he kind of uh, was, was forced to with the, with the Rockets playing catch-up, but this time, you know, the, the Spurs able to get the ball in Avery Johnson's hands. He knocked down a bunch of clutch free throws, and they uh, were able to seal a 107-102 victory. Uh, so uh, let's move on now to Game 4. And, of course, Game 4, especially in a seven-game series, is often the big one. That's where, you know, it, it, almost, it always has to either be 3-0 or 2-1. And, uh, you know, one team is in desperate straits. You, you don't want to go down 3-1 in a best-of-seven. It's very unlikely to come back. So Spurs obviously in a must-win situation, and 
they really played great in this game four. You know, they continued to get good production from Vinny Del Negro. He had 19.7 rebounds, four assists. That same pick-and-roll action with Robinson continued to be effective. And, uh, you know, this was really the first game where David Robinson actually played Olajuwon to a standstill. Robinson had 20 points, 16 rebounds, and five blocks, while as Hakeem finished with 20 points, 14 rebounds, and three rejections. Um, and then, you know, a couple of other big factors, you know, we, we talked at the outset about the, the kind of contrast in styles where the Spurs play that rebounding defensive four in Rodman, whereas the Rockets prefer to play that stretch four in Ori. But uh, in this game, the Rockets shot three of 16 from downtown and the Spurs dominated the glass, winning the battle 64 to 39. Yeah, no, it was a team effort in all for uh, the Spurs. And you already mentioned just that rebounding and everything, but also you had six players for the Spurs in double digits, all five of their starters, including Dennis Rodman, of course, um, doing that. Rodman took that a monster game, uh, 12 points, 19 boards, uh, still took another three. In fact, here's a, a funny anomaly here. Um, the Spurs hit nine threes, right? Or not nine threes. Spurs hit four threes in that, in that game, in this game out of four. And all four of them came from the bench, um, three of them from one player. Um, who was the only other player outside the starters in double figures, Doc Rivers. I thought that was hilarious. Every other member of the Spurs, uh, heave or otherwise, took one and just didn't make it um, for the starters there. But you had arguably the best, well, not arguably, in my opinion, the best team effort from the Spurs team all pulling together to kind of pull away in the one game that was really, well, one of a couple that was really like a, a resounding victory for one team. Yeah, the uh, the Spurs ending up winning this one 103-81. to So through four games, the road team had won every game in the series. And of course, this is, we didn't even talk about the fact that this is, there's also the storyline in terms of the drama of this series, of this being a Texas battle uh, b- between two teams in the same state. Uh, you know, there's there's too many storylines to, to talk about when it comes to this series. But uh, yeah, let's let's move on to Game Five, and immediately before the ball is even tipped, we've got an, some more drama regarding Dennis Rodman. Rodman not starting in this ball game because of a team decision. He was 35 minutes late to practice the day before the game, so J.R. Reed starting in his place. But I mean, I just rolled my eyes at this because it's another situation where it's like, okay, the Spurs have all the momentum. Rodman's been playing fantastic, and now you've got to deal with this. Yeah, that, that to me was frustrating. I mean, here's the thing. I don't know how you feel about this, uh, Garrett, if you were a coach. I would have just kept Rodman in, find the utter mess out of him, you know, internally behind closed doors without letting him impact the team any more than he already was with practice and whatnot. Because in my opinion, I felt the team at this point, having gone through the whole year and all the playoffs up to this point, understood that Rodman was Rodman. Whether that is an excuse or not, it is what it is. And by taking him out and bringing Reed in, you know, kind of just reactionary because of being late for practice and then he also showed up late in the locker room the evening of the game and said he was kind of under the weather. Um, but he'll, at that point, had had absolutely enough. But with all that being said, I just follow, like, you make these rotations, you make these game plans, you do all of that, you have a rhythm, and then you take out um, one of your players who's part of that, whether erratic or not, and you bring in Reed, who's a solid player, but no Rodman, that's, that, that exposes a dent in your armor, 
I thought. And I think looking back, if you look at like, the interviews and stuff, I think um, I remember reading something from Del Negro who said that the benching kind of made a difference just because just the inner distraction. But would you have kept him out of the starting lineup as well um, in a swing game five? Or, or how would you have kind of reacted to that? And I asked that only because I want to fault Bob Hill for leaving him out, but I don't know if that's the right thing to do. But just in spite of where the Spurs were at this present moment, I don't know if that was the right decision. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, you you got to imagine though that if you just let a guy off a hook for violating a, a team rule, um, and and they mentioned keep in mind that it wasn't necessarily that he was late. I think his Rodman's excuse was that he had a headache, um, but uh, the Spurs issue was that he didn't even call to let them know that he was going to be late. Uh, if he had called, everything would have been kosher. Um, so. Yeah, the the challenge there is if you let this guy get away with this now, you know, does that increase the the likelihood that someone else is going to violate some other rule down the road? I personally believe that if you have a team rule, like if, if you're late to practice, you're going to be punished. If you have that set as a team rule, you've got to abide by that, no matter who it is. Uh, but the one thing I probably would have done differently is in the event that you don't start him, maybe bring him in just a couple minutes into the game and make it be kind of like a, you know, yeah, you're not starting, but we're not going to mess up our rotations too much. Okay, I see what you mean. No, that makes sense. And maybe I'm giving the rest of the Spurs too much credit for being, you know, uh, for mostly a good, solid team, just internally and otherwise, that I was like, oh, make a concession for a person like Rodman, that maybe that shouldn't have been the thing to do. But I'm with you. It was definitely... um. Interesting, and I think it was kind of a death knell for them. Um, not just for the, the, the game, but just for the series, because it was another blowout. Um, the Rockets, I mean, we can kind of dive into easily why. I don't think it was just the Rodman distraction, but at the same time, I, I do think that that can't be, uh, to quote the word that you said again, overstated that whether or not, you know, benching or not, whatever, having that happen at that juncture that it happened was horrible for the Spurs in terms of continuity, and you just rallied back from an 0-2 hole, and now you're trying to climb this mountain and, and finish up over the top. Yeah, and you know we, we mentioned Bob Hill's adjustments in games 3 and 4 to get Del Negro involved, which kind of uh, swung the tide in the series. you got to give credit to Rudy Tomjanovich here with this Game 5. He made a couple of adjustments. For one, he started Mario Eli, uh at the 3, which moved Robert Ory to the 4, so... Obviously, going full modern lineup with uh, with uh, four shooters around Hakeem, I thought that was a smart move. That made things difficult at times on the likes of David Robinson because, uh, you know, the, the Spurs liked to maybe, if, if Robinson was in foul trouble, they would just move him off of Hakeem. And if you've got a chill cut or a Chucky Brown out there on the floor, that's an easy option for, gar- for Robinson to guard. But when it's Robert Ory or Mario Ellie, it's a it's a more challenging assignment. Exactly, and, and even though he played heavy minutes and and only hit what one shot, if I remember, um, yeah. But it's still you're right having that force spurt to a point where okay, you're not going to be able to hide Robinson when the guys were exposing or stretching the floor again. We know Elijah wants a monster. This game was yet another testament of that. Even. I mean, he just kept going to such great heights, man. It was it was crazy to kind of see it, but the entire time, he stopped up a 42.9 rebound, eight assist performance with five blocks. So just <laughs> like you said before, Garrett, on both ends of the court being a factor, but now you have 
Again, Clyde coming up huge. Robert Rui playing solid. Sam Cassell being a monster factor off the bench. Um, it, it, it left, it was too much to go through for the Spurs who already had, you know, whatever they were going with. And you had a solid game, a very solid game from Avery Johnson. Again, he, he would be like my MVP for the Spurs side for Robinson, um, who also played well. But it just wasn't enough. Um, Terry Cummings had his best game of the series. Really glad to see him get one last hurrah. I mean, he played for a couple more years. But uh, <laughs> just in short minutes, kind of being a guy you can go to for some offense at times, and the Spurs did. But honestly, I think that was more when the battle was kind of, you know, just what it was. It was it was, it was, was not a good game for the Spurs. Um, it was one that highlighted kind of their flaws. And you're right, Rudy T, um, Hall of Fame bound, being able to capitalize on some advantages that he made, some snide adjustments, or shrewd adjustments being the word I'm looking for, to really take advantage, uh, open up the floor so much for the Rockets and really help them roar out of there, you know? Yeah, it's ama- it, it, it's it's shocking that it's taken this long for him to finally be uh, elected, but um, I'm happy he is. Another adjustment he made, and I noticed this when Cassell came on the floor, but Cassell was doing a better job of of uh, pressuring potential outlet guys like your Avery Johnsons to to make them have to come back to the ball, back to the rebounders, whether that was Rodman or or Robinson, and it really slowed the Spurs' offense down. Again, I think uh, this was a, a contrast of of pace too. Houston liked to get in the half court and and play through Elijah, whereas San Antonio, with all of their athletes, liked to get out and run. And, and, you know, Cassell and, and, and that adjustment of him denying those outlet passes was a, was a really good adjustment in this ball game. This was a lot closer, to be honest, of a game than the, the final score uh, ended up being. You know, the, the Spurs were within, uh, were within two points with just a couple minutes left to go in the third quarter, but Houston went on a 7-0 run to end the period. And, you know, Olajuwon just did so much in this game he uh, he stepped out to, to twenty feet to hit a couple of jumpers. You know the um, you know the, the the Spurs were doing a decent job of double teaming him. So he's like, all right, I'll just catch it out here and, and score. Um, and you know Elijahwan destroyed any any time Terry Cummings was on him. He uh, he was guarding him in the closing moments of the first half with uh, Robinson with three fouls. Elijahwan took advantage there, and then Elijahwan also just blocked everything in the fourth quarter. The the five blocks he had in this game all came in the final period. Jeez, yeah, that, it, again, just, I don't know, man. It's, it's hard to even be able to say enough just how huge a performance uh, Elijah had, not just in this game, but this just symbolizing the way he was in all. There was not a weapon they could have used to stop him. I'm sure if they had played good defense up to that point, he could have went full up. Lopez and knocked down threes the way he was going. I mean, <laughs> it was uh, it was one it was one for the ages, and it was unfortunate that the Spurs were just outmatched at every turn, having to you know not only deal with whatever they're dealing with, but just Elijah Wan and that greatness that he gave. And it's not like he hadn't had great playoff performances before or after, but just it was it, it was a monstrous performance that I don't think I don't know. It, it was one of those again, just like you mentioned with us doing um, the Bernard King. That was like wow. Like, yeah, these were great players, but this was a moment where you could take this performance or set of performances, put this in a bottle, in a capsule in time of, okay, I want vintage uh, 95 playoff Akeem in the post. Yeah, he was uh, absolutely dominant. Uh, I, I did have some notes in here, so a few positives for the Spurs, because, again, I think this was a this was a fun game through about three and a half quarters. 
the Spurs kept it close. Uh, this was the first game where you started to see them put Dennis Rodman on Clyde Drexler because Drexler had such a dominant first half, and I thought Rodman did a reasonable job when he was on him. Uh, Rodman also had a great play where he dove on the floor for a loose ball, got it, and did a little behind-the-back pass to Del Negro, and uh, Del Negro got a layup to draw the Spurs within one in the closing moments of the third. But, you know, Hakeem, not only with the, the crazy point totals in this one with 42, but just hitting those, I consider them like the MJ-type shots where your best player just knows when you, your team needs a bucket. And whenever the Spurs got within one, it looked like Hakeem was hitting a jump hook or hitting a jumper or getting a blocked shot. Anytime San Antonio had some momentum, Hakeem had an answer. Yeah, at every turn. It was, it was like the perfect cheat code. I mean, honestly, it was at every point on facet of the game, um, Hakeem had his pulse on it. And it was one thing to watch it in real time and go, wow, you really couldn't stop the man. And it's another, it was almost like, watching the great Curry run in, in 2015 and other spots where it's like, no, there is no answer we have. And I don't know if, you know, they come to the realization, I just know they showed cuts of the Spurs bench at times, like frustration and trying to, coaches trying to come up with a game plan. There was nothing that could be done, even looking at it now. Well, you know, we might have made minor adjustments knowing what we know now or, you know, how the game has evolved and what could have possibly been done. But even that, I mean, I struggle to think that that would have stopped a guy like Hakeem who just at all levels and having the force spacing ability or the full awareness to pass out and being such a cerebral player to, to that would eliminate him. I, I really don't think, I think, you know, obviously he's all time great, but just in that series at that time, I don't know what you do. Yeah. They, um, they, they didn't have many answers and he was just playing at a level where it just felt unfair. And, and at times I got kind of the, you know, the 2002, Kings versus Lakers vibes where it's just like the Kings have no answers for Shaq but they're also just such a great team uh, that but and it's this battle of like an entire team against one player really uh and and that's what it felt like at times but uh uh, an interesting stat Greg Greg Gumbel was on the play-by-play call for this game he had a he had a really fun stat where he mentioned that Avery Johnson talking about a guy that was really at the peak of his career at this point but uh, also talking about his work ethic, he averaged, uh, he improved his uh, his points per game average in each of his first seven seasons. So a stat that uh, I think maybe Kawhi Leonard also matches, but a few guys in the history of the league. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Like the, to improve each year. Yeah, no, that was something insane. You're right to kind of keep that. I think only when I remember another player doing something even similar, I think it was just increasing the scoring average each season, and that was uh, I think like Derek Harper or something for like his first like seven years. But yeah, that. To one to have old school um, announcing teams, real quick, quick aside, can we talk about the fact that they had on one of the games, um, I mean, to one see like a 25 year old, uh, 25 year younger um, Ernie Johnson on the call, but they had one where a special aunt was 22 year old Chris Weber, and I laugh at that now, <laughs> going at what we have now with, you know, uh, both of them being, uh, and, and Chris Weber, I would. I wouldn't mind seeing less of, but both of them being on calls and stuff, you know, and part of the same NBA on TNT crew. But having a halftime show, and I was only able to catch one um, from the game I was able to watch, but of Ernie Johnson and Chuck Daly was really kind of cool. Just seeing, I'm, I'm, I'm a lover of like classic NBA production game values and just like how <laughs> it was done and the setup and the announcing style and the cheesy 90s music and I mean, the commercial. 
commercials, hook it in my veins. You know what I mean? Hook it in my veins. Speaking of the cheesy 90s music, I mean, that music was the, I think you're referring to the NBA on NBC theme, the greatest sports theme that has ever been created. Oh my gosh, yes, that could be my lullaby, yes, I could walk the aisle to that song. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> honestly, the, with, with, um, with no exception, every time I hear that theme, I'll find I'll catch myself hours later humming it to myself. Uh, but uh, oh, yeah, it's, just, dude, it's it's awesome. It's awesome. I mean, you know what's funny? I saw another okay, another retro kind of funny thing was um, there was a commercial. I think it was middle of game. I want to say three, where they showed a promotion for the 1995 NBA draft by showing old highlights of rookie sensation Grant Hill, and it was really cool. Oh yeah. To see him in that old red and blue Pistons blue and, and real time then reacting to his career and saying, "Who's the next guy to come out?" And just knowing what you know now as an NBA uh, uh, fanatic, you know it was it was fun and that music was great. I think the NBA and TNT music though was some it was the most generic cheesy round ball music I can remember. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the the game five ended with uh, the 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 Rockets pulling away, and and they ended up winning at one eleven to ninety. But again, I'll I'll say that it was a lot closer game than than that final score would indicate. So Houston continuing the road team winning trend in this series. So now we're heading back to Houston for game six. So obviously the Spurs have to be the favorite because they're the road team. Uh, so this game also, you know, just like game one, ended up being really tight. This was probably my favorite game out of the uh, the whole six-game series. Um, and, and again, Hakeem getting off to a great start with a couple blocks in the, uh, in the early going. And uh, I also noticed there was a, a questionable offensive foul call on, on Rodman on a play where David Robinson took a, uh, you know, his his classic 15-foot jumper, and Rodman was tussling with a guy inside, maybe gave the guy a slight forearm. But the foul came way after the shot was taken. The shot went in, but uh, they called the offensive foul and uh, called it no basket. Wow. I, almost, when you're saying it, I'm remembering the fight now because there was a few that were interesting and well laid as far as reaction time. It wasn't quite to the level of the egregious calls that we saw in that previous series that we talked about between the Knicks and Pistons, but still, yeah, I do. That was, um, it was a startling one. Especially, you know, now I'm seeing refs that I now see on TV kind of talking about how refs should play and, or how refs should react and whatever, you know, on the call where they're the ref analyst or whatnot. And I'm like, well, how did you miss that, <laughs> you know? Or what took you so long to call that play? It was, it was it was definitely weird. And it was same on, if we're talking about refs in general, just some traveling calls that you said, some were valid and some were interesting or some questionable foul calls where, I don't know, I think it was much better officiated than like the previous one that we talked about, but at the same time, there was still a few that were, I mean, looking back on it now, I guess, I want to say with the hindsight 2020, but honestly, it just felt like the obvious call that was missed. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, though, that the refs, for, for the most part, did a did a decent job in this one. There weren't as many of those where I'm just like, oh, that is a horrendous call. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the Spurs in the first half of this game really, again, going back to what worked in, in game one in the early going, which was that Avery Johnson-Robinson pick and roll on the right side, allowing Avery Johnson to go left to his strong hand. Johnson had a beautiful half hook off the glass. He also had a play where it looked like he was going to go up for the shot. He got Hakeem off his feet and then had a behind-the-head pass to Robinson for a dunk and one. 
so Avery Johnson continuing to play well. He was a guy that, uh, again, you know, I, I obviously know about Avery. He, of course, uh, later coached uh, for for the NCAA and uh, the Dallas Mavericks of the NBA. But uh, really fun to watch him as a player and, and at his uh, diminutive size still be successful. Oh, yeah, he was such a general on the floor. He obviously, when he brought the ball up, got the Spurs not only to the offense, but it felt confident in a way that, and not that it didn't feel any less um, competent with Doc at the helm, but you just, I mean, it was really the first year that he kind of took this Spurs offense at the helm as his own. And the confidence which he played, the steadiness with which he kind of brought to the table, that consistency, Doc was kind of your classic kind of stabilizing backup guard in general. But you could tell that Avery Johnson was tailor-made for this team. And that the way he played and knew when to attack, when to get foul calls, like like that coaching strategic mind, um, but with the ability to play that like he did, he made up for his lack of stature. He made up for that lack of, of long-range shooting ability, not that it was a necessity, but I think teams definitely – um, we're willing to see all types of outside shots, even what you would think are like basic, um, you know, 15-foot or 20-foot shots. And he raised his game. And I think that was, that's what I remember from that. He was a guy that was definitely a hero for this team and definitely changed my perception of how I look at him. Because I'm not going to lie, before this, you know, you watch a lot of basketball, but I think of Avery Johnson, you know, as a coach, um, primarily with the Mavs, later on with the Nets. Um, Gotta get the ball to, you know, his voice. <laughs> I, I remember him primarily for that big shot he made over my, uh, 1199 Knicks in the finals uh, to really spoil a very good Latrell's free will game. I don't remember him being a consistent source of just offense leadership and just that rallying guy for the Spurs to kind of go around. And every time the Spurs had a great game, and even the couple times they did, you could tell that Avery Johnson was the guy to really kind of key that attack. Even more so in some ways than Robinson was consistent throughout. But I mean, obviously, some of that's positional. Just you know, it's easier to impact the game as a point guard than as a center. Um, even in the days where it was kind of built around the center, but you had a guy in Robinson. I mean, in um Johnson, who he just did such a great job managing it. You know, and I, I don't want to say it disparagingly. I'm running out of words in which to describe him, but I think that's the best way to say it without being um totally deprecating as far as managing the game and and being someone that's not gonna just up and down take over. Although he very well could at times, but just knows the pulse of it and what to do at the necessary time. Yeah, he's definitely a floor general out there that uh, that helped them get to the pace of play that they wanted. One of the things that was really refreshing about this series in general was that, yeah, despite you had certain players outperforming others, I think for the most part, all of the key guys had moments where they were playing really well. Um, so so that was fun. Uh, the, the, the Spurs, again, on the road, you know, really in control for most of the first half, but about halfway through the second quarter with the Spurs, I believe, up five or seven, uh, there's a play where Sam Cassell gets a pass in transition and, and Rodman grabs him and, and pulls him down, almost kind of a, halt, a horse collar sort of play. And uh, I believe that Rodman was called for a flagrant foul on that, and he immediately goes to the bench. And for the second time somehow in a six-game series, he's taking his shoes off during the game action. <laughs> but uh, it, it, it did feel like that was a, a crucial point in this game because the Spurs did seem to have control. And as soon as that play happened, Rodman leaves the court. The momentum changed.
skirmish or near skirmish action between Mario, Ellie, and Dennis Rodman. But for the most part, I felt that it wasn't really a chippy series throughout. You know what I mean? And so to have a moment like that, that yeah, one came and you know, it's what we want to do. It's a high pressure situation. A lot going on. These teams have a lot to obviously play for um, with the NBA Finals and the line and just playoff desperation kicking in for the Spurs. But also, yeah, the reaction by Rodman. I get some calls. Maybe looking back that he had or didn't have weren't cool, and you know the coaching jerking around the lineup wasn't great for him. But at the same time, I mean, just forget the fact that some of it was caused by himself. Other parts, it's like you just have to react better, especially being someone on this team, one of the only ones on this team aside from Malone, who was really inactive with championship pedigree. Um, having been there multiple times, I mean, I think he, aside from what anyone who was on last year's Rockets team and Clyde Drexler was one of the more experienced players in general, just from the trips to the finals and playing there, that you think, it just goes to show you that maybe championship experience, while necessary, is sometimes an overstated attribute. Um, I mean, especially for a wild card like Rodman. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, so again, I mentioned that uh, that that play kind of changed the momentum. The Rockets started getting back into the ball game. Another key play that I thought was, uh, was notable... Hakeem had a block on a Robinson dunk attempt on one end and then ran down the floor and caught an alley-oop layup on the other. That tied the ball game. The teams went into the locker room, knotted at 44 at the half. But uh, another play where it's just like, man, as good as Robinson is, he's just getting outclassed. Yeah, I mean, you, you said it pretty simply. It was just that. I mean, it, it, sometimes it happens, you know, as good as, uh, and I think the series told that, you had a solid player, I think Rob, uh, Robinson deserved to be MVP that year, uh, Hakeem played very well, and, you know, I think he took his game up another level down the stretch, but just for consistent dependability, team success, all of that, I think Robinson deserved it, but you played someone who, you know, at his peak, at his best, is just better, and, you know, you just got to tilt your hat to that, and, you know, I don't feel bad for Robinson looking back, because you definitely got your rings and then some, um, later on, but at the same time, you know, he, he was just, he just got out class. Like you said, there's no other way to say it except that uh, you did, you put part of your best shot. You definitely got better season when, as the series went along. But, I mean, coming out the gate, Hakeem had it and he never let go. Yeah, and uh, Hakeem's teammate Clyde Drexler probably knows all about being outclassed in a, uh, a playoff series matchup given the, uh, the 1991 NBA Finals. <laughs> or, excuse me, the 1992 <laughs> NBA Finals. Uh, but uh, yeah, the another note I had uh, going into the second half was that Robert Ory, you know, he just comes up big when you know in big games, hitting big shot after big shot in this one, uh, and and yeah, the uh, the other thing again, going back to Game Five where the series at times felt like it was Olajuwon versus the Spurs, that's what it was in the third quarter as well. San Antonio hanging in there. And Olajuwon just going blow for blow. Um, the the other funny thing, you know, Bill Walton and Steve Jones were on the the color for a couple of these games, and I just got to say, Bill Walton is really bad at this. <laughs> he uh, at, and at one point he claimed uh, Hakeem Olajuwon tipping was due to Rodman not blocking out, and I heard that and I'm like. I, I mean, I just watched the possession. I don't think that was the case. So I rewound it and looked, and it's like, absolutely not. That was not uh, that was not Rodman's fault at all. He was on the other side of the court. Yeah, okay. That, 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 uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think the miscues that Walton had were, like, some of my best miscues when I first started podcasting and, like, I totally not 
check my resources beforehand to make sure I had my stats right or whatever. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. There was one, like you said, the only thing I can think of is one time I was talking about um, the Knicks, and I said that a big reason why the Knicks had done something, I forgot what year it was, it was a while back, was because that Patrick Ewing, you know, had played such a monster role, and he was injured for most of that season. And I was like, dude, yeah, you watch the games, do your research, like, but that's not even that. It's just like, you're on the actual, like, you are there. You are in, like, you are watching the game, you are alive, you are, you see the action in front of your eyes. Where do you come to such conclusions unless you're not maybe, you know, mentally there as far as maybe distracted or looking somewhere else? I've watched the same play. I remember this one. I was like, I guess for me, having watched more um, college basketball 2019, 2020, uh, Bill Walton than I would like to see, I'm used to it. I just figured he was always like this. But, like, that sort of play itself was one where... I didn't, I didn't even have to, I was like, you were like trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. You rewound and was like, let me see. I'm like, no, that's not accurate. Like, yeah. Like, you know, it was almost like I, I make fun of Marv Albert all the time. Where it's like, Chris Paul pulls up for three and he's shooting a free throw line jumper. Like, no. And I, you, there's no benefit of the doubt. He was wrong. He never had a chance when he said it. And that's Bill Walton's uh, broadcasting career. It was actually funny seeing a lot of those guys that we see now on NBA TV or something really get their start you know, as player analyst or whatnot. And, again, going back to Chris Webber, in some ways, sounding smarter then than they did after all that play experience and all that broadcasting experience years later. Well, yeah, and speaking of, uh, you know, players turned coaches, I mean, the the Spurs had uh, quite a few of those guys, uh, obviously, most notably the the uh, Doc Rivers and, and, and Vinny Del Negro and Avery Johnson, you know, most of their backcourt on this team ended up being, uh, you know, <laughs> to various degrees, successful coaches in the NBA. Um, But I I had a couple of notes on David Robinson. The last couple of minutes of the third quarter, I thought he started, uh, you know, making an impact. He was really good. Uh, He had a move. One of his few moves on the post that was effective against Akeem is where he would face up, he would drive left, and then step through to his right. uh, and, And that move would often draw fouls. He got to the free throw line quite a bit with that play. Uh, but there was another play in this game where you're just watching in amazement at the athleticism of David Robinson, where Sam Cassell was dribbling past half court. Robinson just running like a gazelle chases him down and pokes the ball out of bounds. Um, you know, there, there's just a few plays where you're just like, man, this guy is a, is a graceful athlete. Oh, yeah. I mean, all serious. I'm glad you pointed that out. You know, you had several plays by Robinson that were just joys to see that showed, you know, not only just a physical specimen, but just all that skill and, and play. That the one play, I think, early in game one, where he chased down and blocked a Kenny Smith dunk attempt. Not only did he block it cleanly, he came from one side of the floor to the other, caught stride for stride, and, you know, they didn't call him the Jet Smith for nothing. Kenny was fast, <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, it was just crazy how quick in reaction, in gracefulness, in fluidity on the play, where Robinson was, and, and you, again, pet moves he had in the post, uh, fluidness sometimes with which he drove to the basket, um, especially, you know, as he found himself more um, in his comfort zone. I love when he do, really took the ball went on the wing, about 15 feet face, jab-stepped, and just took that jumper. He was so comfortable taking that shot. And when it was rolling, it was really rolling. I loved it. Um, but, no, he you got to put a spotlight on Robinson because he played well. He did. It just – he had his moments, and, and when they were bad, they were bad. I mean, that, that he probably wants to forget game one ever happened. Um, I understand that completely, but as I mean, he was the the guy that led them to there. He got them to within a couple games of the promised land, and he his 
play justify that? Like, there was a reason that, you know, he was that guy. I think that he was more better suited if we're going to do, like, a career retrospective on, like, him as, as more of a complimentary player, having maybe, like, a Twin Towers format, which ironically is what he would get later. But to say that, I mean, anything less than him being destroyed, yeah, he, he got outclassed. But I think he more than held his own um, in this series. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, to, to just give an indicator of how tight this this series was, and in particular this Game 6 was, uh, the the line score for this one, both teams uh, finished with 21 points in the first quarter. Both teams scored 23 in the second quarter. And then in the third quarter, Houston outscored San Antonio 32-31. to So at the end of three, Houston up a single point. But again, uh, about as close of a game as you can get. Uh, and, and to start the fourth quarter, a uh, couple of things. You know, Sam Cassell, I thought he was, uh, you know, he had his moments in this series, but in this game in particular, he was he was pretty poor, had a couple of bad shot selections, didn't shoot the ball well. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I mentioned the, the adjustment that Rudy Tomjanovich made in Game 5 to get uh, Mario Eli out there to put Ori at the four, and this benefited the the uh, the Rockets in the fourth quarter. David Robinson picking up his fourth foul early in the fourth, so they move they keep him out there, which I think was a smart move. But they move him on to Robert Ori. But again, because there's not a Chucky Brown, there's not a uh, Pete Chilcut out there. Uh, Robinson has to defend on the perimeter. Ori made a nice move where he blew by Robinson and had a major right hand dunk for an and one, uh, but but that just goes to show you that extra spacing and the benefits that that can provide. Yeah, that's true, and you're right, matchups, lineups. I mean, that was a good call to, to try to put Robinson there, but not only did you have a better matchup in Ori, but you also have to have someone to kind of adjust and make up for his man, that cross um, kind of chess match, which is so fun and interesting to really delve into um, in a playoff series especially, but just in general over the course of basketball games when you can kind of adjust in real time and adjust based off patterns and whatnot. You're right. It was those kind of plays, those moves within the margins that really made the difference for this series. I mean, you went there with a line score. I had no idea it was that close, even watching the games and knowing that, yeah, even the blowouts started off pretty nip and tuck through at least three quarters um, for most of them. And so, yeah, that was, uh, like you said, little stuff here and there really made all the difference. Uh, for the series overall, and as much as it came down to the big guys for each team, your Clyde Drexers, your 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 um, Avery Johnsons, and then of course your David Robinsons, your Clean Kim Elijahans, it was also the coaching stuff in between. Obviously, Dennis Rodman, his antics, uh, cross matches, switches, and there was a lot of it that was very interesting to kind of delve into, and and not only realize as the announcing team and everything did at the time, but also with the hindsight knowing, oh, this is what they should have done here and what we probably would have done to maximize the floor ability and what the heck are you doing with J.R. Reed and so many heavy minutes over Rodman for a possession that you want to get an offensive rebound. You know, things of that sort. It was, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and, and you mentioning Clyde Drexler and his performance. Of course, uh, he had those huge defensive plays in the end of a, a tight game one win. Uh, And in the fourth quarter of Game 6, he came up with back-to-back huge defensive possessions. One play where the Spurs got the ball into Rodman. It looked like he had an open layup. And as he goes up, Clyde comes in and strips him. Then goes coast-to-coast and uh, feeds Cassell for an and-one opportunity. And that also uh, led to David Robinson picking up his fifth foul on that play. And then, you know, just a few possessions later, Clyde Drexler gets a uh, basically a pick six where he, he steals a pass and takes it coast to coast. 
and all of a sudden what was a very tight game throughout with a couple of huge plays like that, Clyde the Glide Drexler puts the Rockets up nine with uh, 5.45 to go in the ballgame. Yeah, and those runs, again, it was several moments where that, that one was to kind of take a game that was within range and close it out with the vice grip, but there was other ones for the Spurs, too, to kind of get back into it, frantic rallies. It was one of those, and you got to love those, where it's like, okay, you know, we had another series we had analyzed where the kind of team ran kind of ran away with it, and you can kind of tell trends and things, and there was others where in between the game, you can see the reaction, reaction, and you described it perfectly. Clyde Drexler down the stretch, man, I mean... For the series, you know, 19.7 rebounds, four assists tonight. But I think that drastically under understates the impact he had if you look at each of those six games, you know? Right. And uh, you mentioned the, the runs going back and forth after Drexler propelled that Houston run. Doc Rivers making huge <laughs> plays. He had seven straight. He had a couple of times where... He, uh, the, the the Spurs finally just fully committed to, you know what, we're not going to let Hakeem beat us here down the stretch. We're going to start double-teaming him and forcing a pass. Rivers gets a steal on one play and actually draws a foul on Olajuwon and gets two free throws. Uh, and then also, you know, he hit a uh, he hit a big three and then also hit a baseline jumper. And I'm, I'm thinking at this point, man, Doc is, uh, Doc is coming to play. Oh, yeah. Doc, man, I got so much more respect for Doc as a player after watching this series. I've watched, like I said, just in general, circumstance and whatnot, a lot of uh, uh, Doc Rivers just with the Hawks and in general. But seeing this and seeing someone who's like, hey, you know, I want this. And not only in that way, but backing up with this play. Again, the numbers don't show it. If you look at his, you know, series stats against, it was nine points a night, a rebound, and literally under an assist a game over that six-game period. But if you watch the actual game, see the jolt he gave the Spurs coming in. See those frantic moments where he took down the stretch and when he relieved Avery Johnson, who played superb. I mean, again, I just, a lot more respect for Doc Rivers has grown. If anything, on this NBA shutdown has shown me, I'm not going to just look at Doc Rivers coaching the Clippers and go, stop blank, for You know, God, get the ball blank. I'm thinking now, like, okay, we had a gamer here, you know, and, and he, uh, he did his thing. He totally did. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, that, that 7-0 run tied the game at 92 with 3 minutes and 20 seconds left. Uh, Drexler came down then, and, and again, another situation where uh, in the last few minutes, at various times in, in games 5 and 6, the Spurs put Rodman on Drexler, but for some reason they went away from it. Drexler had Doc Rivers on him, he draws a foul, makes one of two free throws to give the Rockets a one-point edge with 2.14 left. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Robinson on the other end, you, you mentioned he uh, he regrets game one. I'm sure he regrets this play in game six. He got the ball just about two feet away from the rim. He did get contested by Olajuwon, but missed a point-blank layup. And, uh, you know, that would have put the Spurs back up one. Instead, the Rockets come down, and Robert Ory, big shot Bob, hits another huge shot off of a double team on Akeem. I mentioned the Spurs were double-teaming him every possession down at this point, but that three put Houston up four with just two minutes left. Yeah, you're right. That was a, I mean, it was lightly contested, like you said, but that was a bunny, and that was one that definitely could have, you know, your last gaps when you need those buckets, all I could think, and it's nowhere near that same level, was when uh, Tim Duncan, I think it was in the 2013 uh, finals with the, with the Rockets in Game 7, oh, not the Rockets, against the Heat in Game 7, missed that bunny and then missed the tipping. Yes. And, like, uh, like not anywhere near the scale. Game seven of the finals, Western Conference Finals, closeout game. It's it's close on the pressure scale, but like in terms of that would have been 
so so good to have. And nine times out of ten, I'm sure you know you would have done something differently, converted that, and it sucks that you didn't. You really needed that, you know. Yeah, and, and given how the, the NBA Finals ended up turning out with the Rockets sweeping the Magic, I think this really was kind of the NBA Finals in the same way the 2018 series between the, the Warriors and Rockets were was basically the NBA Finals. So, so yeah, it, it was a pretty big moment, and, and who knows what happens in a Game 7, even if, if the Spurs were to have won this game and, and kept up the road streak. You still might have favored Game Seven just because of how overwhelming the numbers are for the home team in a decisive, you know, winner go home game. Uh, but yeah, that was a that was a big sequence there. And then also Robinson missing three free throws in the last couple of minutes, including one trip where he missed both. And then you know, with the game kind of getting out of reach, Robinson catches the ball on the left side. He drives baseline fires a pass out kind of a, a a wraparound pass up top to where doc rivers was but for some reason doc rivers was already worried about getting back in transition before houston even had possession of the basketball he had retreated to about half court and then realized oh crap that pass is for me and uh ended up uh, being a step too late cassell grabbed it and doc found him what was a miscue there that was damaging was it was a you're right like he went back as if he thought that Robinson was going to go to a quick move and that he had to limit the transition game. Meanwhile, you know, Houston was strategically going, you know, um, fast-breaking, but that wasn't at all their, um, like, regular style. You know what I mean? That was more the Spurs. So the fact that he did that in the past came, I was like, yikes. Again, another devastating miscue where, you know, you weren't all on the same page and one that comes to bite you, especially in those pressure cooker moments. And I don't know. That was another one. You could probably take, like, three or four plays down the stretch that, Yes, the Rockets played superbly well. I mean, we can't talk enough about that. But also where the Spurs definitely could have made it a little tighter, had a couple things not gone certain ways. And, and like you mentioned, with the home court having that advantage there, I would have liked to have seen a Game 7, if only because the Rockets had played through so many games. Yes, they were inspired. Yes, they came with more energy and zip, particularly in the first two games. And Hakeem was dominant as all get-out. But I, I, I don't know. Part of me wonders if maybe a Game 7 would have been a lot tighter and maybe some of the weariness would have caught on with Houston because everyone knows once they got to the finals, you know, they, they, they preyed on that inexperienced Orlando team and it wasn't even close outside that first one, really. Well, the first two. But in general, I'd like to think that the Spurs would have done some more reasons. But just like you were saying, not only is the home court a factor and the Rockets' play was a factor, but also, I mean, the Spurs and Dennis Rodman at the time, I don't know, obviously, what's sustainable past that season. I don't know if it would have got them you know, unified enough to get a key game seven um, against a team that was, you know, had the heart of a champion. <laughs> yeah, there there were plenty of times in this series, though, where I felt like the Spurs were the better basketball team and they were just being uh, defeated because Hakeem was just going nu- nuclear on them. Uh, oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, and, and again, you talk about, um, you know, after that foul on Cassell, he... He, uh, he made one of two free throws. The Rodman had a tip in to bring it back to within three, but um, they fouled Ori, who, of course, is clutch and made both free throws, and, and Houston ended up winning the game 100-95. But, uh, you, you know, you, you talk about these games, and, and you think, oh, it's a six-game series, so it's not super close. But when you, when you talk about game games one, uh, two, three, and uh, and and six being the close games, the fact that Houston won three of the four was really the difference in the series. You know, even if that goes 
two and two, maybe San Antonio wins it. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. Execution, closing down down the stretch, um, having, I, I don't want to say choking, because I think that's too strong a word, but having a, like a team that in this time had already gone through multiple games or series pushed down to the wire, and knowing how to execute and take over down the stretch, and having a guy who, I mean, let's face it, down the stretch, Elijah was better as a go-to guy than Robinson was, um, just time and time again, but it was other performances, you already mentioned, um, erratic as he was at times, Sam Cassell hitting big shots, Ori being clutch, Drexler being consistent as all get out, um, again and again, it was a team who had been in the situation multiple times, and knew how to come through in that situation, maybe more so than the Spurs, um, who in contrast seemed a little unnerved at times, and not in sync, just when they need in that sync the most. Yeah, looking at some of the Game 6 statistics, Clyde Drexler finishing with a a really good all-around performance. 16 points, 10 rebounds, 7 assists, and those two key steals I mentioned. Hakeem with a monster 39.17 rebound, 5 block, 3 assist game. And uh, I think it's time, now that we've we've gone through all the games, it's time that we finally uh, just mention these... uh, these numbers between Hakeem and, and Robinson. So I'll, I'll mention Robinson's stats first because I think if I read these off to people, they'll say, oh, that's that's pretty good. So 23.8 points, 11.3 rebounds, 2.7 assists, 1.5 steals, 2.2 blocks, 55.3% true shooting on 28.5% usage. You know, solid numbers, right? But I like it. <laughs> but uh, here's Hakeem's stats for, for this six-game series. points per game, 12.5 rebounds, 5 assists, 1.3 steals, 4.2 blocks, 56% shooting from the field, and 59% true shooting on 36.8% usage. Yikes. It doesn't hold a candle, unfortunately, when you say it like that. Because (laughs) Robinson played so well. Hakeem was in another stratosphere. Yeah, the, the the one thing I will say, and again, going back to our, our thoughts at the beginning and how I think Houston was just a little bit better set up, a little bit more modern of a roster in terms of being able to space the floor around Hakeem. I don't necessarily, I didn't watch that series and say, oh, Hakeem is a much better passer than David Robinson. I think he just had a little bit better options so that Five assists versus 2.7. I I think uh, Robinson is uh, a little unfairly criticized as far as that aspect of things. Oh, yeah, I agree. It, the bottom line is, I mean, creativity. You know, you saw some nice wraparound pass from Robinson. You saw some good uh, uh, observation on the floor and good reads by Elijah one. But, you, like you said, kick out. Uh, you had people who were more consistent outside shooters um, for the Rockets who knocked down more shots. And that kind of made... A big difference. I also want to say one random stat. Talking about maybe someone who whose game fit more in the modern NBA style over six games. Forty threes were fired up by one Robert Ory. He converted seventeen of those bad boys. So forty two percent. Yeah, excellent performance from him. And again, even the one bad game he had in game one, he hit the game winning shot. So uh, Robert Ory was was really great in this series. But yeah, I I really enjoyed this. You know, there 
there were times in that uh, you know in in the previous series we did with the with the Knicks and Pistons especially those games three and four where you know I was a bit bored watching it game five was was really entertaining but at no point in this series was I bored this was fascinating and really fun to watch and again despite the fact that yes the game isn't quite as spaced isn't quite as free-flowing uh, that that was just a, a heck of an entertaining matchup. Oh yeah, no, I'm right there with you. You described literally how I felt from the first to the second, where every game here was like get your popcorn, kind of relax, kind of delve in. Although you're trying to, you know, obviously look at analytically with some historical retrospective there, going wow, like I'm really enjoying this game. There was a couple plays, a couple shots I rewound just to watch again. You know, no more reason. Yeah. No observation, but just like wow, that was a good shot. Or wow in the face up, where you hear the crowd get behind a big three from the Spurs, you know, in those first two home games, and you feel the excitement. You know, I'm sure you do, man, but I miss NBA hoops. And watching some of these old games, even knowing sometimes when the outcome is already decided, getting that same type of reaction behind a big shot that pumps up the home crowd, or a great chase down block, or, I don't know, a good corner three, it may not happen as much um, back then compared to now, modern day, you know, NBA, but it is just exciting and just as uh, welcome. Yeah, I mean, pretty much uh, you could name any series in the history of the NBA, and I, I know in the back of my mind, you know, who won and how many games it went, but it was, as you said earlier, it was nice to just not know exactly who was winning each particular game, you know, to see to see Houston win the first two. I'm like, okay, this is the, the, the reasonable thing that'll happen here is San Antonio will split one on the road, it'll be 3-1 Houston, then the Spurs will get... Uh, we'll win game five, and then we'll come back to Houston where they close it out. But that wasn't the case at all, so it was nice to kind of be surprised at how it all went. But, uh, yeah, were there any uh, were there any final thoughts you had, Corbin, about this series before we wrap up? Um, aside from saying what a great series to look back on, Garrett, it was really cool to pick apart this a little bit, see some guys that you know I hadn't really paid too much attention to from a historical perspective, or, or more from a historical perspective, but not from just within that one year. You know, Dennis Rodman, a lot about the Bulls and a lot about the Pistons, but I forget that Spurs uh, uh, journey there. You know, Willie Anderson, J.R. Reed, Terry Cummings, uh, newfound respect for Doc and Avery Johnson. Really, we already said enough, really good series to look back on. Gameplay, coaching style players. I had a lot of fun with this one, man. Yeah, absolutely. That Spurs team is now like on the short list for me of some of my favorite teams to, to not win the title. Uh, but uh, Corbin, now that you're uh, you're officially in your title as co-host of Duncan Dynasty, why don't you uh, why don't you uh, sign us out here? <laughs> okay, here we go. Um, definitely make sure to check out great episodes of Duncan Dynasty on Spotify, on iTunes. You can find that Duncan D U N K N Dynasty. Check that out. Um, follow at Garrett Bouguet. Um, should I get that right? Yes. Make sure I had to, okay, I had to make sure there. Two oh, R's great. and two T's on Garrett. Two R's, two T's, make sure you get that show. Um, great content, NBA stuff, good conversation. If you want to talk hoops, check that out. Um, I, uh, aside from that, I mean, follow me at Corbin NBA. I'm there on the Twitter sphere, but um, check out Duncan Dynasty. A lot of good stuff already done, um, especially now you're trying to get your NBA fix. And uh, I think that'll do it. I think I did Iowa with that one. Yes, you did. All right. Well, yeah, we'll... we'll... <laughs> We'll sign out with that, and everyone listening, have a good rest of your day.